Jiu-Jitsu is the world's most effective martial art, spanning centuries, even millennia, from the ancient Japanese samurai to today's modern military. Find out what you know about this intense and legendary fighting system. From the dojo to the octagon, we bring the Jiu-Jitsu Master Podcast. This is your co-host, Sri Pendikatla, and I'm here with co-host Chihan Russell St. Hilaire, 7th degree black belt in Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu. Hi, Sri. How are you doing today? Great. So what did you want to talk about today? Well, I think we can dig into history a little bit, right? I think it's a good place to start. We did a little overview of, you know, what Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu was, but let's start at the beginning. It's always the best place for a story to start, and we'll, you know, talk about how Jiu-Jitsu became Jiu-Jitsu and go from there. Awesome. All right. So, in the beginning... <laughs> So jiu-jitsu, most people associate with being an unarmed self-defense, although that's not totally true. Jiu-jitsu, you know, uses knives and small swords and other small weapons. You know, jiu-jitsu is a Japanese form of, of self-defense and a grappling type martial art. But of course, it came from somewhere, just like everything else, there's a root from somewhere. And historically, I think people have, you know, looked at each one of the individual techniques, just like they do with like language and how language spreads. They they looked at jujitsu and the techniques that are in it and, and definitely feel that, you know, it's part of self-defense type of arts that actually spread throughout the East. More than likely, every tribal area had its own way to defend himself, right? It's, there's always weapons involved. There's always ways to take weapons away from people, you know, protect yourself, etc. But I think the things that specifically became jujitsu really were the techniques and stuff that came from the Mideast and from like Greece. So as as the Mideast started spreading out throughout the world, you know, it's it kind of went into the areas like India. And although there were local, you know, self-defense arts there, you know, here comes stuff that came from like Greek soldiers and they knew how to like throw and wrestle. And, you know, they took that stuff and mixed it in with what they did and you know, then with the advent of Buddhism, that sort of spread east into China and that mixed with their stuff. And, you know, they picked up some of the Chinese striking arts and then they eventually influenced the Japanese. And, you know, they did what felt right for them and mixed it in with their traditional arts. And that's sort of what became uh, jujitsu. I mean, you can go back and look at drawings and inscriptions that are like in Egyptian temples and see people doing techniques, drawings of people doing techniques that look very much just like jujitsu does or judo does today. You can see it in Greco-Roman wrestling. Um, you know, you can see it in uh, arts uh, in China, in India, in Japan, you know, in, in Southeast Asia. So there's common roots for, for all of that. But specifically uh, in Japan, um, jujitsu, which wasn't called jujitsu at the beginning, um, that really had to do with battlefield fighting, right? So the people that were on the ground, the foot soldiers with their swords and their spears and whatever else they were carrying, the people that were riding around on horses with spears and longer swords and, you know, basically how they fought their enemies and what they would do if they got unarmed, right, disarmed, um, what, you know, how could they still defend themselves? So that's that's really sort of, you know, the beginning uh, uh, of jujitsu. Um, there's some early writings that kind of capture some of the, you know, first times p people tried to capture what they saw as jujitsu, and, and those were early, early on, like in the BC time frame. So 
thousands. Yeah, I was going to ask ago. you about uh, that time, the time frame you're talking about. So you mentioned antiquity, basically, back in, in the Egyptian times and Greco-Roman, when the when the Greek Greece and, and the Roman Empire was strong through the time of uh, Buddha from India into China. So by the time it got to Japan. Are we talking now? Is this what century approximately would you would you have to pay if you had to pinpoint it? Well, I think some of the earliest records, which mean it probably existed before that, um, but some of the earliest records were like around 23 BC, so you know, 2,000 plus years ago, I think is when people started recording some of the fighting techniques, uh, which probably means they were around you know longer than that, uh, which would you know which would make sense. If you think of Buddhism spreading around 2,500 years ago, um, you know that probably makes that probably makes sense. Okay. And so, you know, they really focused completely on battlefield. Um, they did a lot of fighting uh, in in armor because well, not armor like we think about in in England, but armor that was made out of leather and bamboo and metal. And um, so they had a couple of uh, early styles that were called kumiyuchi and takoi and and even uh, sumai, which became what we consider to be sumo some of the some of the movements in sumo actually came from this real early style definitely centered around throwing people like hip throws and and that sort of thing and then wow really kind of, sumo yeah 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 <laughs> yeah no i guess when i've never one really thought about where sumo comes from so that has a um a background in in jujitsu as well uh yeah well i mean it's before jujitsu believe okay. it or not I mean, it's even before so yeah you know ways of taking down your opponent to the ground right they're trying to they're trying to stab you or hit you with a sword or whatever and, and it's you know it's a way of taking them down to the ground immobilizing them taking their weapon away essentially right so that's that's really what it was used for um i think there was ongoing influence from china especially around uh, choking and joint manipulation and striking, specifically striking techniques, I think were, you know, things that came from China. And then once we got around like 800 to 900, somewhere in there, AD, then it really started becoming, you know, um, what we call Ryu, right? Which is like a, a style of jujitsu. And the different clans around uh, Japan, you know, had their secret style, right? So that they could use this against um you know, the, the other clans that they were fighting against. Now, would so, they be called samurai at this time, or are they still just kind of warring factions? And and are they aristocracy? Are they peasants? Is there a little context around what kind of people they were? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, nope, no samurai yet. They really were clans, some extended families and, and, and groups of families. They were definitely clans. Um, one of the first ones that uh, we really know about that were using what we would consider to be, you know, secret family styles uh, was this guy named Tejin Fujiwara. He was a, a warlord, essentially. He really spent a lot of time figuring out how to, like, take weapons away from people, right? How to bend their wrists, their elbows, you know, their shoulders, do locking and, and bone-breaking techniques in order to disarm people because that was something that was really important. He, as a warlord, the, the Minamoto family kind of picked his as the guy who was going to teach this to all of the various, um, you know, armies and, and military groups. And so, you know, that's where it really started to be codified and written down and, and, you know, considered to be a, a specific style. I'm sure there were other clans out there that had their own versions of how to, of how to do that. But also you have to realize the context too, right? It's, it's not that they were just practicing disarming techniques. It was part of the larger military group of techniques, right? Called Bujitsu, war, the science of war. So they would have, taught you how to use a spear, how to do archery, how to 
do archery from the back of a horse, um, swordsmanship, um, how to make early explosive devices, you know, all that sort of stuff was all all considered in the in the style um, that they that they were teaching. As these clans grew and as warfare became, you know, more um, developed, techniques became more and more developed. That's where we first started having our different ryu. So ryu in Japanese means a stream, like you know, a stream in the woods, but they used it to mean sort of a stream of consciousness or a stream of knowledge that got passed down from one generation to the other. So by the time that we were kind of like getting into the 11 or 1200s, they were actually starting to have family names associated with these different styles of, of self-defense. And one of the earliest ones, which of course a lot of people out there have heard of, is uh, is Aiki Jiu-Jitsu. That was, that was really one of the earliest styles that they decided to name and they named it that because they really understood that if you would blend with how your attacker was moving, that you could more easily use leverage and stuff against him. So Aiki kind of meant the, you know, the blending of thought and action, right? Aiki Jiu-Jitsu was probably one of the earliest named forms of, of Jiu-Jitsu. You say Aiki Jiu-Jitsu. I think some people have heard of that. I think more people are familiar with the term Aikido now. Is that sure coming from that or if you're going to be getting into that later. Yeah, no, no, we can talk about that now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Aikido did come from Aikijutsu. Uh, so, you know, that's a, where you get to understand the two different words, right? Jitsu, as in Jujitsu or Aikijutsu or, or any of the other Jitsus from Japan, basically means a science and it's a science specific to war, right? It's it's used against your enemy that you're going to have in a, in a time of war. And then there's the word do, like in Aikido or Judo, which really just means the way. That more refers to using martial or warlike techniques for reasons other than war, right? It could be for basic civilian self-defense. It could be for the perfection of character. It could be for physical fitness. could be for sport. So yeah, Aikido was, was a form of Aikijutsu that uh, the person who coined that term Aikido, Morihi Uyashiba, uh, decided to call it Aikido because he wanted it not just for self-defense, but also for a higher a higher cause. You know, that was in the 20th century. So, you know, Aikijutsu had lasted all the way from, you know, probably the 1100s all the way up until uh, modern times. And, and Aikijutsu in its original form still exists. I mean, there's still Daito-ryu Aikijutsu and a few other different styles uh, of Aikijutsu, Aikijutsu that still exists, um, which is slightly different than jujitsu. Uh, jujitsu has a, a, maybe a little bit of a different way of looking at things. So jujitsu was mainly used by the foot soldiers early on where, you know, it was close hand to hand combat out on a battlefield uh, with people wearing armor and having swords and knives and spears. And, and you were going to get into close combat with these people. You were going to be grabbing onto each other and fighting for your life. So jujitsu really focused in on how to throw your opponent to the ground so that you could, you know, injure him or so that you could take a superior position. And it, you know, showed you how to use your, your tanto, your knife, your sword in very close combat and also how to disarm your opponent. And uh, you could do things like uh, arm bars and leg bars and choking and all those things that we associate with jujitsu when you're, you know, unarmed in a dojo today. That really came from the uh, battlefield of, of Japan. You know, a question I, I I keep getting from people when I talk about jujitsu and uh, when dating back to the samurai is that is jujitsu actually 
done by the folks, the the samurai that were on horses. Uh, but you just mentioned foot soldiers. So were, were the per- people who were on horses, or is it, 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 or did it somehow at some po- later point in time graduate up to the higher ranks? Sure. So you know, typically on a battlefield, right, you had. Uh, the foot soldiers, just like you have the infantry today, um, you would have had mounted soldiers. Uh, you know, today we have people in vehicles, but back then it was people that were on on horses. They had to do their war techniques in slightly different ways, right? Because one guy's right there, face to face on the ground, and the person's on a highly, you know, mobile vehicle like a horse, and and uh, has a much greater distance to cover with weapons, etc. So, uh, the aikijutsu techniques. Um, that were associated with uh, people that were the higher ranking people uh, were somewhat associated with the battlefield, right? How to, you know, disarm somebody that's trying to stab you with a long spear or an extra long sword or another person on a, on a horse slashing at you with a sword. Uh, but it was also because they were often, you know, in a court, uh, you know, they were in the Shogun residence. They were in the, you know, residence of all of the high-ranking warlords, um, and there was a lot of etiquette uh, involved um, in that society. So, be, you know, you le- you basically left your sword at the door, and uh, you weren't carrying your long swords inside. But you know, there were still attempts on your life or the attempts on the life of, uh, you know, whoever you were serving, and you had to be able to, you know, still do self-defense in a more unarmed way. Um, so a lot of that Aikijutsu stuff really focused on disarming. I mean, that's really the, the, you know, the meat of that art is how to disarm somebody with a sword, a spear, a knife, um, you know, other type of weapons, uh, much less of the throwing, um, or grappling type of art that you would have had from somebody who, you know, all of their war techniques were, were truly on the battlefield, not, you know, not inside uh, a warlord's residence. And so, you know, that's kind of how it existed with uh, the samurai, with the soldiers. Yeah, you know, I just want to touch real briefly on the term samurai. Uh, you know, we associate the samurai like it's a title or something or defines what that person is. But uh, yeah, we tend to glorify samurai to a great degree. I mean, there's anime out there now and there's been there have been samurai movies. Um, oh, yeah. Big, you know, I'm, a, I'm a big martial arts buff. I love those kind of movies myself. But please tell us, like, what what does it really mean? And and a quick aside, um, if you can also answer the question, what do, did all samurai have swords? Ah, uh, okay, yeah, sure. The term samurai just means to serve. That's that's literally all it means. So, uh, it just meant that you were serving, you know, uh, a clan leader, a warlord, the emperor, whoever. There was somebody uh, higher than you, some higher cause than you as the individual that you were serving. I, I kind of doubt that you would have ever you know, heard a sentence from a Japanese per- person back in the day saying, hey, look, a samurai. It, it, would, it would have more been in the context of he is samurai, which would be more like he's a, a person who serves a warlord, right? Uh, there was probably you know, other words that they used at that time that would have just said, hey, that guy's a soldier, right? just like we say today. Probably the difference between us looking at somebody who is a army ranger, right? It would still be very correct, and most people would say, hey, that guy's a soldier. But you could also refer to him as a ranger because of specific skill sets that that person has, right? So, And the respect that goes along with you know, more elite type of force. Absolutely, absolutely, and and the samurai concept really got disbanded um, in the 1880s, as Japan wanted to become more of a world power and had to, 
you know, agree to terms and, and treaties and, you know, really didn't want to have this clan system of warlords out there with their own personal armies, you know, running around doing whatever they wanted. So they, they got disbanded. And that's actually one of the best things that happened for the history of jujitsu, because once these unemployed samurai were not going to war and, you know, many of them just kind of, you know, use their swords to pass down through the family because there was really no real need to use them because firearms had come come into uh, being in Japan. A lot of them decided that they didn't want to let that Ryu part, right, that passing of knowledge from generation to generation, especially within a family from father to son, they didn't want that to be lost. That was something that was very meaningful in Japan, not just around the martial arts, but in many things, right? The The I don't want to call it a religion, but the spirituality of Japan is Shinto. The whole concept behind Shinto is that knowledge. So that was something that was very um, natural to Japanese people to want to pass that down. So suddenly we had these schools popping up where it was like, hey, we'll teach you the warrior arts. You're not going to use them, right? You're not going to go out in the battlefield. We don't do that anymore, but we have to preserve these things. So that's when people really start writing down these scrolls of all of the techniques and having specific ways that they would teach people and having specific names for their schools. Of course, it was a, a way of making a living, too, for these unemployed samurais. And and a lot of those type arts are what you see in, you know, what is known as traditional jujitsu. If you go to Japan, um, you know, you'll see people dressed up in the traditional clothing going through these very, you know, robotic marching kind of versions um, where they're preserving this historical version of jujitsu for historical purposes only. You know, that's that's something that you would see in Japan done almost like we do reenactments of civil war battles here, right? It's really just in a historical concept where real jujitsu, the real true self-defense has continued to this day and continues to grow and change just like it always did in Japan all over the world. Just to put things in perspective, though, you mentioned before when the samurai were kind of unemployed and they, they started passing their knowledge down, was that only through their families? Now, was jujitsu ever taught or that knowledge ever taught to the masses or peasants? Or if I were somebody who really liked fighting or wanted to know about that, would I be able to learn that back then? Sure. So at the very beginning, it was definitely only within the family or within your clan. That's the only place that they would really ever, ever teach. Um, they didn't teach outside. Now, there were a few people that really saw it as a money-making opportunity and did start small clubs and, and invited other people and civilians to come in and start learning that. Japan was also changing very quickly. Suddenly there was all these Western people from all over Europe that were coming, starting businesses, working with the government, trading, um, and they became very fascinated with these arts and were certainly willing to pay to be taught. So, you know, I'd say right around the turn of the of the 20th century, right, from the 1800s into the 1900s is where we started seeing people other than the Japanese being taught these arts. And a lot of those people are what I, I was talking about uh, in an earlier podcast uh, about my book, Pioneers of American Jiu-Jitsu, talks uh, quite a bit about those people who were the first non-Japanese that started learning from Japanese and this started getting passed down. Of course, the European view of education was quite different. You know, they really were all about classroom and curriculum and universities and professors. And, you know, so they really just took that Western view of how to educate people and took Japanese uh, martial art techniques and started to form what we kind of consider to be, you know, modern Japanese martial arts. Also, right around that time, uh, one specific in individual, Jigoro Kano, who was the founder of judo, he also really was interested in turning the martial arts into something educational, right? He wanted it in the school systems. He wanted the whole country to be able to 
you know, use it as a sport. So he really took many different styles of jujitsu and started putting them together and figuring out how he could do safer versions of some of these deadly techniques and how he could turn it into a sport and how there could be, you know, ranking so that you could progress through almost like ranking like you would in school. You know, you get you go from one grade to another. He came up with the idea of belts and and diplomas and then even turning it into a sport where there could be competition. So schools could go against each other and see how good their their uh, jujitsu would work. You know, eventually it became called judo, but early on it was just called, you know, Kano's jujitsu. And, and so again, now it started context of just being part of a, of a clan or, or being, you know, a Japanese warrior. So when Kano took it in and made it into judo, did jujitsu still continue down in parallel with judo and then Brazilian jujitsu and other forms started to appear at that time period? Yeah, absolutely. You know, judo started becoming popular throughout Europe and that spread quickly because of its sportive aspects. You know, everybody in Europe loved various types of sports. But yeah, there were parallel schools, right? There were still probably, oh, a good 50 or or so schools that still existed after judo was founded of, of traditional jujitsu. And I would say most of them, uh, you know, 95% of them really became the type of traditional schools that preserved the ancient ways of doing techniques. If you see them today, like if you look at Takanuchi Ryu um, or Yoshin Ryu, you're going to see jujitsu as it was done in the 1600s or the 1700s, and not in the battlefield way, but in the way that they preserved the curriculum, the techniques, and how you have, you know, how you have to learn them. So it doesn't look like fighting as much as it does a demonstration. Of techniques because that's exactly what it was for. But there was that other 5% of the schools that continued to teach and operate as, as if it was during wartime. So they continued to teach the combat versions of the techniques, combat and competition within their schools. People got hurt quite a bit in the schools because it was so realistic. When there was a quote-unquote competition or challenge to another school, you know, people left with broken bones and you know, uh, smashed in teeth and that sort of stuff. And they also were, had a mentality, a mentality of self-defense. So they weren't concerned with preserving what they needed to do to defend themselves on the battlefield of the 1700s because that didn't exist anymore. Now they were worried about how do I defend myself against this guy from England who's carrying around a a pistol in his pocket and, you know, he's going to hold me up and take my money or, you know, somebody's going to come into my house with a rifle and, and try to do something to my family or got these people that know how to do knife fighting now that come from other countries or or even from their own country. Right? Here's all these unemployed former warriors out there that were kind of like bandits on the street. And so all they were concerned with was how do we defend ourselves against what is dangerous right now? And they also realized that that would change generation after generation. So there are still a handful of those schools that in parallel went through the 20th century into into modern times and and still do exist. They're probably a mix of of many different schools because time time does that and always did in jujitsu, but they're still focused on real applicable self-defense that and so they still exist out there and and then there's the sport versions that still exist out there right we still have judo which is very popular we have brazilian jiu-jitsu which came from uh, a form of of judo kosen judo we have uh sambo which is in uh in russia 
Um, we have other other grappling arts around the the world that came from jujitsu uh, and are still practiced as a as a sport out there today. There's been some questions around um, the spelling of jujitsu. There's I've seen it spelled J I U or J U, and then jitsu is usually J I T S U, or sometimes I've seen it as J U T S U. Is there any difference? Uh, so there is and there isn't. So I can I can tell you definitively, uh, there is no correct spelling in Arabic letters of jujitsu because it's from a country that uses a language that's written in a completely different alphabet. So um, they use a conceptual uh, alphabet, whereas we use uh, an alphabet that's based off of pronunciation. When the Western world was introduced to jujitsu, they would write it down however they really heard it. You know, So if you were in uh, a city in the north, like Tokyo, you may have heard it said in you know whatever that local accent was. Or if you were down in the far south in in Kyoto, you might have heard it different. Or if you were in a mountain village, you may have heard it different. You know, so in general, it would have sounded relatively the same. But the way we see it spelled in Arabic letters is really more to do with the history of where that group of people heard it. Did they hear it pronounced like? Jiu-jitsu. Did they hear it pronounced like jujits? Did they hear it pronounced like jujitsu? It just depended on the various areas that uh, that this came from. So I would say that um, in general, uh, the Western world has accepted either J-I-T-S-U or J-U-T-S-U as the correct writing for the word for science or study, which is jitsu. And again, if you were more in the north or more in the what they call Tokyo Ben, you would hear more like the jitsu, like the I sound. If you were in the south, which is more like the Kansai Ben, you would hear more like the jitsu. And then the ju part at the beginning could be J-U or it could be J-I-U. I know that some of the earliest books that were written about jujitsu uh, in the English language, they used J-I-U. Uh, but that's simply how they heard it pronounced to them. Um, when you look at it in, you know, in Japanese, they use kanji, which is uh, an adapted Chinese conceptual lettering system. Pronunciation isn't important. It's it's the meaning of the words, right? Jutsu is the in-depth science uh, and study of something. And ju means to yield, right? To be pliable, uh, to give in to something. And that's a concept around um, jiu-jitsu, right? Yielding against somebody that's stronger than you and using their strength against them. So again, that that's kind of a long answer, but it's to say that several spellings are correct, but at the same time, none of them are correct because they're not written in the same alphabet as the Japanese use. Thank you for that. We've gone through where jiu-jitsu potentially have come from way back in the past to where it is today. Yep. What's the before we close this um this particular chapter, what is the future of jiu-jitsu? Well, I think we're going to see a couple of things. Um we're we're definitely witnessing, you know, the future of jiu-jitsu in some ways. Uh there are two specific what I'm going to call families um out there, and that is self-defense focused uh jiu-jitsu and sport focused jiu-jitsu. And that is not to say that people that 
learn the self-defense version or practice the self-defense version cannot use those techniques in a sport venue and, and vice versa. Those who learn the sport version certainly can apply many of those techniques uh, in a self-defense type situation. And then there is the third, right, which is the military version, the combatives. And we're going to talk about that extensively in another in another podcast. But but in general, it falls into those two camps. And I think it's going to remain there. There, there is always a need for an everyday civilian person um, who does not wish to be in competition uh, and is really not all that concerned with you know ranks or fighting or MMA or that sort of thing and, and just wants to know how to defend themselves. How do they stop somebody from punching them? How do they get out of a headlock? You know, how can they protect their children or their loved ones? What do they do if somebody sticks a gun in their face and demands their ATM card, right? There's always going to be a, a, a need for personal self-defense or defense of yourself and your loved ones. So that's always going to exist. And, and that'll continue to develop according to what the potential danger um, or, or potential enemies are. And then there's the sport version. Sport is something that's loved around the world. I mean, there are, are hundreds of sports that are enjoyed by people, certainly teaches them physical fitness, gives them a group of people that they can interact with, a community. Um, it allows them to prove how well their training is working for them. Some people like the recognition and the trophies and the medals. Uh, so I think that's always going to exist too. And and both of them are good and, and both of them are important because they force each other to examine each other. Human nature always wants to point out what's the best, right? What, what's the best of, of something? Who's the best football player? What's the best martial art? You know, what's the best, you know, restaurant? We always have this preoccupation with the superlatives. So there's always going to be that discussion out there of, of which style or which family is the best. And to really understand the nuances of what makes an excellent self-defense art and what makes an excellent sport version of the art. But we're definitely going to get much into um, the details of both self-defense and sport in, in our future podcasts. So I think we covered a ton of history today. I know it's probably going to spur more questions than I answered, which is great. You know, there are very detailed histories, both on my blog and in some of my writings and, and the writings of other people out there that certainly can be explored. You know, I welcome anybody listening to, to you know, submit any kind of questions they may have. But I, I think we've covered uh, enough for today. Uh, hopefully this was helpful for people to put modern jujitsu into its historical context. Great. Thank you very much, Jim. You are welcome. Looking forward to talking to you on our next podcast. Thank you.